the 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 profit is made in the purchase, not the sale. So it's really all about buying right. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by Ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jason, J. Lou Lewis. And today we're getting to dive into a creative concept called buy on the line, move the line. It's a strategy on how creating deals is a better approach than hunting for deals. And today's guest is that's going to be speaking about that is Mr. Victor Minash. And his background in the real estate world is he is a real estate developer in multiple cities and also the host of a real estate podcast called The Espresso Podcast and author of the book, Magnetic Capital. We'd like to welcome Mr. Victor Minash on today. Great to be here. Well, hello, Victor. Let's, let's, uh, we can either take this two, two ways. We can dive right into the concept or we can go into normally what we do, which is take us back to your, your first real estate deal. Tell us how, how you got into the real estate world. So maybe we do that and then we can, we can segue into, into your creative concept that I would love to hear more about myself. And hopefully the listeners will, will uh, be excited. I am about that concept that you're, you're wanting to come on and talk to today about. Sure. Well, well, thanks for having me. And uh, my path into real estate investing was definitely not your typical career path. I started out my career as a microprocessor developer, so in the high-tech industry. And I have microprocessors in all kinds of different applications all over the world. If you made a phone call in North America anytime after 1992, uh, about 52% of the phone calls in North America were processed by a chip that I designed. If you've ever used a Canon multifunction printer, Panasonic printer, uh, flown on an Airbus aircraft and watched a movie in one of the seatback displays, or used an Apple Airport Express Wi-Fi access point, those are all my microprocessor, to men- just to mention a handful of different applications, but there's literally hundreds all over the world. So the path from there into the world of real estate investing is not a straightforward path, to be sure. Uh, my very first project, I live here in Ottawa, Canada, the nation's capital, and what I discovered long before the days of Airbnb and VRBO, so there was a demand for medium-term accommodations for parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officers that were looking for a place to stay on a medium-term basis. A suite hotel was well above the housing allowance and a 12-month unfurnished lease was useless to them. So I started in the business solving a very basic business problem, which was how to get these folks that need housing with a fixed housing allowance, how to get them the right product. So I figured out what that number was and said, okay, for that price point, can I deliver a product that's a fully furnished suite rental uh, within walking distance of Parliament for that specific client? And it turned out to be a good business. It wasn't a great business, but it was a good business. And that's how I started in real estate. From there, uh, moved into uh, seeing what happened in 2008, 2009. I was still at that time traveling back and forth to Tokyo every two weeks, uh, building a new cellular net- network there, and decided to quit my job as VP of engineering and uh, move directly into the world of real estate investing full time. I saw it much as we are today, a very steep downturn almost the opportunity of a lifetime, which it was, and little did I know, 
that that opportunity would surface again. Here we are, 2020, into the teeth of a very, uh, very deep, deep recession here. So there will be opportunity opening up, and uh, it was a good time to get into the market where it was hard to make mistakes, uh, or at least the market was forgiving of mistakes. I'll say that's probably a better way to say it because I certainly made lots of them, but the the market having bought right at such a low price, the wa- the market wallpapered over those mistakes, and uh, we were able to to survive them without without it hurting too badly. So that's how I got into into development. That's great. So you went into it, and you were doing some of this hospitality real estate at the same time that you were doing your day to day job full time as well. And sounds like traveling every two weeks to exotic places at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that was unusual in the world of real estate investing, a lot of people look at real estate investing as a very local business. And I started out locally, but in the tech industry, I developed the skill of working with people who are not local, not 50 feet away from my office. And, you know, when I was VP of engineering uh, for the microprocessor development team, I had 13 different design centers reporting to me. So my staff meetings were a multi-time zone, multicultural affair where I often had to translate from English to English because the breadth of the accents from one part of the world to the other was such that they couldn't understand each other, even though it was all English. And uh, I just got very comfortable with working with people that were not physically next door to me. And that just became a a core skill set for me. So it naturally made sense that didn't matter where I lived, uh, the real estate projects could be anywhere. Uh, it was really just a natural extension of that skill set, even though it was unusual at that time to be doing that sort of thing. And I've simply carried that forward to today, where we've got projects in multiple cities, and they're all, well, fa- finally now, actually, I'm doing another project in my local city, but it's been a bunch of years uh, where I did not see opportunities locally and much better opportunities further away. Is technology today, say even this podcast and Zoom and and Google and and Microsoft Team, all of the different apps and concepts out there that allow you to even do this more virtually than a year ago. How do you feel that that's going to change the the sector of out of state, out of town uh, investing in real estate brokering? I think the big change is that a lot of people have been forced into using the technology that's actually been mature for quite some time. I've been video conferencing since 1994, so that's a long time. And I've been using that technology, various forms of it for a long time. If I need a walkthrough on a property, I would FaceTime, I would get someone local in the market, and I would have them be my eyes and ears, but they're walking around with a cell phone and I'm directing them on what to focus in on. So I can do a virtual walkthrough of a property live, and I've been doing that for years. Um, now the, the whole COVID-19 situation has forced people to adopt technology that they might have been otherwise reluctant to, but it's been around for a long time and we've been making very effective use of it for years. For most of the past decade, my average day has been three to four hours on the phone at least and uh, either phone or video conference. So it's been pretty much business as usual for me. Yeah, the the CEO of OpenText, they have, I think, 15,000 employees across the world came out today and, and said that they've had this plan to get their workforce working remotely um, for two to three years. And they figured it would maybe be like 
two to 10 years before they could implement that. And, and uh, COVID accentuated that, that time frame or jumped up that time frame to a couple months. And now they're beyond what they had planned to do two to 10 years ago or in two to 10 years was their time frame. Uh, so I definitely will see a lot of people that weren't that technology, technological savvy adopting it much sooner than they they might have and it sounds like you've you've been doing it since 94 so you you've seen seen the benefit of it for sure absolutely and you know for, i'm you mentioned i'm the host of the real estate espresso podcast a daily show seven days a week uh last summer i spent three and a half months living on board a sailboat in france and was producing shows from the boat from the pier from wherever we happened to be, it might have been from a beach, and the listeners really had no idea. And it was putting out that content each and every day, and as long as I had a stable internet connection, I could upload the show. So it really doesn't matter where in the world physically you're located, uh, the technology exists today to get pretty much anything done. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, let's take us into the topic that we wanted to cover today, which is uh, you know the concept of you're, you're finding them versus hunting them. What I've found is that in the world of investing, and everyone knows this to be true, if you have multiple offers on a property, it becomes an auction and the price is going to get bid up much more than if there's just a single offer or better still, no offers. That's just the basics. And what we find is that in markets, especially in the core of a city where the, the land is desirable, it's highly priced, you often get this situation where there's multiple bidders going after the same property. And especially at the bottom of the market, you get a lot of people looking at product that is completed. They want to do light rehab. They want to do, um, you know, cosmetic uh, improvements because that's the simplest thing to do. But the downside of that, of course, is there's a lot of people eyeing the same properties. You get a lot of people bidding on it and that tends to bid up the price. Because, you know, something appears on the MLS and or even if it's off market, the, the brokers these days are treating it still very much like an auction. They know that they're going to get the best price if they, if they attract multiple buyers and especially in multifamily. I mean, over the last several years, if you had a large multifamily complex come on the market, there would be multiple bids. And it was, you know, we were seeing cap rate compression. It's been talked about by many of your guests over the over the years, and uh, cap rate compression has been a real issue. That may subside a little bit now in the current market conditions, but uh, I don't want to be competing necessarily. I don't want to be the winning bidder if there's 19 other offers on a property. Uh, just guarantees I'm paying too much. But I want to get into a market where there is opportunity but no competition. And the place where there's no competition is there's no one competing for an idea that's up here in my own head. So I don't want to go find deals. In fact, I never go hunting for deals. Uh, they, they either come to me because people recognize me as a source of potential capital, or it's an idea that's been created literally out of thin air to satisfy a particular market need. So someone will look at a derelict building and they're not going to see a 10-story or brand new apartment building in that location. That, that's not what they naturally visualize. I look at a property from the perspective of what is the zoning permit and what can I do on that property, whether it's a small transformation or a major transformation, I'm always thinking, what can I transform that particular property into? And as you know, 
buying property is uh, the, the the purchase the 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 profit is made in the purchase, not the sale. So it's really all about buying right. And this is where we literally stumbled into this particular strategy uh, in um, in Philadelphia, about two hours outside New York City. For whatever reason, we found that there were a lot of people in Philadelphia uh, speaking with a New York accent. And so why is that? Well, New York, as you know, has gotten very expensive. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of new product introduced into the New York market, but it's an expensive city to live in. You know, you, it's difficult to own a car. You're going to spend $16 every time you cross a bridge or a tunnel to bring a car into the island of Manhattan. Uh, I mean, just everything is expensive. If you've got six figures and you're living in Manhattan, you've got a roommate because that's all you can afford. But if you relocate, say, to Philadelphia, you can be into the city in an hour uh, with the high-speed rail link. If you have to go into the city once or twice a week, no big deal. And you have a much higher quality of life in Philadelphia, still a very cosmopolitan northeast city uh, with lots to offer culturally for a fraction of the price. So we've seen a lot of people gravitating into the Philadelphia market. And there are some neighborhoods that are very hot, very gentrified. And you go two blocks too far, and oh my gosh, you're in the hood. And that dividing line between that hot, gentrified neighborhood and the hood is arbitrary. It, there's no real reason for it. It's not because it's a municipal boundary or a freeway or there's a school district or anything like that. It's completely arbitrary. And we found these dividing lines all over the city and wherever you might be listening if you're thinking about your home city, I'm sure you can picture this exact same situation. There is that dividing line. You go a couple couple blocks too hard, too far, and you now you're into a rough area. That's where your opportunity lies. That's absolutely where the opportunity lies. Now, it doesn't always turn into a hard line. Sometimes it's a bit more like Swiss cheese. But if you start to amass property just on the wrong side of that line, now you're buying land for pennies on the dollar. You redevelop that, and now the line has moved. It's moved to the other side of your property. And then guess what? You can do that again and again and again. That's the core of the strategy. It's essentially, you know, people talk about it as moving, uh, developing the path of progress. Well, don't develop in the path of progress. Be the path of progress. Control it rather than being controlled by the market. Now, if you just do one or two properties, it's not going to be enough for the marketplace to take notice. It's You've got to put a little scale behind it, but you do five or 10 or 20, and all of a sudden the marketplace says, oh, look at that. The line has moved. I get it. Now, of course, the whole notion of value is created by uh, what's in the surrounding area. You may not get 100 cents on the dollar for that new product just on the wrong side of the line. You may only get 95 or 97 cents on the dollar in an appraisal. But if you're buying the land at a very, very steep discount, that's how you create value. That's how you create the margin. And uh, so we've you know, done this repeatedly in Philly and in other markets, and uh, uh, it, it's turned out to be a great strategy for us. Are you developing, scraping, and developing multifamily, commercial single family, or are you fix and flipping the burst strategy? What what are you doing, you know, say on the line? Because as you kind of call it, buy on the line and then you move the line, which I now understand is kind of that I, I tread very lightly with this word of gentrification, but essentially it's that 
area of progress. So you are buying on it and then you are the one moving it by improving that. So, so two quick questions. One is, is what are you doing to the actual property you're buying? And then two, what I've seen is that when you buy a couple in an area and then that area improves, then when you buy your fourth or fifth one, then your the prices are higher. So you now that you've kind of moved it, so you coming in and buying a a bulk amount at once. So then you've captured that that pre moved line pricing, uh, or how do you handle uh, once that you've actually moved the line? Yeah, those are great questions, and and uh, the answer is yes, a little bit of all of the above. We have done single family townhouses. Uh, Philadelphia is a very old city, very narrow streets, not a lot of parking, a lot of street parking. And if a property can be redeveloped and can be redeveloped fairly inexpensively, we'll, we'll do that. What we prefer to do are land assemblies, where if you can get three or five or seven lots together, especially if they're zoned multifamily, we would prefer to do a land assembly uh, to maximize the density uh, is really a way of extracting the most value. But we also want to build a product that's going to be desired in the market. So one of the differentiators that we use is that, uh, again, it's an old city, not a lot of parking. If you ha- can incorporate parking into the design of your building, that is a huge, huge differentiator. Uh, you know, it's going to be decades, if ever, that Philadelphia will have enough parking. And there's other cities, you know, around the country, where the, especially in the core of the city, where that's true. So, you know, we've uh, often built uh, ground level structured parking. Uh, The city raised the height restriction uh, for many of the buildings. So we were able to, uh, they raised the height restriction without increasing the density. So we're able to build higher. That gave us the ability to build the ground level structured parking, but to elevate the building onto say second, third and fourth floor without having to install an elevator. And uh, so maintain the same density, but incorporate parking as one of the key features, one of the key differentiators of the product. And so those buildings will always be full. Uh, there will never be vacancy in a building with parking in, in a decent area in Philly. That's, that'll be always true. So it's the kind of protection that you want to, to protect yourself against market downturns. And, uh, we, you know, at one point in time, we started messing around with zoning and getting zoning variances to try and get a little bit higher density. And it's a good way to create value, but it also is a good way to create uncertainty. So you don't know what the city's going to say or what the Zoning Board of Appeal is going to say. You don't know how long it's going to take to get an answer. Meanwhile, the meter's running and you've got land tied up. So we, we've really backed off of that and decided to stay within the envelope of what can be built by right within the approved zoning. In terms of whether we, uh, you know, scrape the ground and, and build new versus not, it, it really comes down to just running the numbers and, and seeing what the demand is in that particular area. You know, and uh, you had one other question. I forgot what it was now. Yeah, on, on uh, I think you answered a little bit at the beginning is if you buy kind of in bulk to oh, yes. verify that you have secured that pre moved line pricing or how you handle it once that you've moved the line for future purchases? Or do you then go find the next line or the next city or the next submarket to to do that in? We've traditionally done a lot of land banking. So if we found pricing in a particular area, uh, we've typically gone after a fair bit of land. Uh, for example, and then there's one area in Philly that's about a 10 block radius. And we purchased probably about 85 properties within that 10 block radius. So we purchased a fair bit. 
And, you know, the price per square foot varied uh, depending on when we bought it. For example, we did a land assembly uh, of an entire city block. And this is actually kind of funny. The very first properties we bought in Philadelphia, we bought 15 properties in one day at an auction. Uh, This was the Philadelphia Housing Authority selling, I don't know, 600 properties in one day. And uh, they they filled a hotel ballroom with like a thousand people. And there were uh, a lot of very small packages in the auction, one or two properties, and then a few larger packages that were like 15 to 25 properties. And I told the guys, I said, look, let's not mess around with these small packages because there'll be a lot of bidders where if we go after the bigger packages, we'll probably be alone or at most one or two bidders. And that's what we did. And we literally picked up 15 properties for $350,000. What year was this? This would have been 2011. Okay. That's how we started uh, in the Philly market was with that one initial purchase of 15 properties. And as part of that initial package, there were four properties on a street on the 1700 block of Ingersoll Street. And they, I mean, this was a really rough street. There was mostly condemned buildings. It was narrow. I mean, it just had nothing appealing about it at all. And we said, so we assigned a nominal value to those four properties. We said, you know, we'll just value them at six grand a piece, like basically nothing. And we'll sell them for for whatever we can get for them and move on. And then we thought about it some more and said, well, wait a minute. What if, what if we went the other way? What if we could assemble like the whole block? Would that be worth doing? Because if they were really worth nothing, if these four properties were worth nothing, maybe there were a whole bunch more properties that were nothing, that were worth nothing as well put them together and it might be worth something. So uh, that's what we did over the span of about five years. We assembled an entire city block. It took a while. Uh, and our average basis per, per property was around 13,000. The very last one or two properties that we purchased, we paid too much for. We probably paid, I don't know, 35 or 38,000 for, for these lots. And they're small and narrow. Well, fast forward to today, uh, each one of those lots would sell for hundred grand easily. And, uh, and we redeveloped that entire block uh, simply by doing land assembly. So that, that turned out to be a very, very good strategy by taking things that really nobody wanted. See, land is, is interesting. There's two ways to make money with land. You can go into a farmer's field and you can carve it up into building lots. So you're either carving it up into something that, and, and selling it off in pieces of higher value or, you're putting it back together. And if in a, you're in a dense urban environment and you want to put the land back together, now you create developable land that's of much higher value because when you put in the, the, the current zoning rules and setbacks and all of that parking requirements, all of that stuff that is new that wasn't there when those buildings were built originally, uh, you have a lot of constraints. So you need more land to develop today than you might have 50 years ago to build, you know, the equivalent product. And, uh, and so when you do that, you create these much better opportunities simply by doing land assemblies. You don't even have to build the property yourself. If you want, you can specialize and be a, just a land developer and focus on doing land assemblies and get three, four, five, six lots together and then package that up and sell it, uh, maybe either entitled or not entitled, sell it to another developer who wants to take it vertical. Uh, there's a lot of people that all they do is just land development and they just do land assemblies and it's a great strategy in a dense urban area. Yeah, that it's been the case for a few guys out here in Denver over the last eight years that have 
not wanted to do any of the risk of the development of themselves. And they wanted to, they're more churn and burn guys, the guys that just love the hunt that once, once the, the, the chase is done, they don't, they don't want to do any more of the work. They want to go on and hunt the next, next thing. So yeah. they took advantage of that, that concept and they essentially assembled land and were the experts at zoning. They knew every MS3, MX3, MS2, MX2, you know, they MS5. I mean, they knew every one of them out here in Denver and they just went and, and hunted, hunted down those, those different, uh, animals. Each, each animal was a different zoning and they, they knew everything about those certain assets and they, and they took advantage of it and they made a ton of money, but also the developers that bought from them made a ton of money because they knew when they were buying one of these kind of wholes and they wholesaled them a lot of times, uh, once they tied them up, they knew that they were getting a great, great product to take to the finish line or a great piece of dirt to take to the finish line. So it was a win-win for, for a lot of guys and gals, you know, during the last eight years. Now those deals are kind of dried up because everyone has now found out about the value of MX3 zone lots in Denver. So they become very difficult. And I'm guessing that's maybe the case in Philadelphia. If you're saying that lots that you were buying for average of six grand now is valued a hundred, it's it's a little more difficult to go assemble a whole city block if you're needing to pay 100k a, a lot or a door, you know, for for those properties. Uh, absolutely, and you know, we're at a point in time where uh, certainly the strategy has changed in the last five six weeks. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily go out and do exactly the same thing that I would have done a year ago. We would be looking today for. Uh, more distressed opportunities, people that had maybe gone into developing a project and couldn't get it off the ground. So rather than necessarily uh, starting with a blank sheet of paper, I would probably be looking for those places where someone had a development idea and couldn't get it off the ground. So, you know, now they may have some debt on the land. They, uh, They don't have a path to repaying the loan. There's no cash flow associated with it. And so they've got an asset that's burning cash. It's not not an asset, it's a liability for them at this point. And it's going to be years possibly before they can actually go vertical with it. So I would probably be looking to uh, find some of those distressed assets, uh, again, at the right price, uh, help someone solve a problem. And, you know, we might build what they conceived of, or we might uh, build our own concept. It's, It's hard to say. What are a couple other ideas around maybe the land or assembling or development or on the moving the line concept that you would see as possible opportunities this next six to 12 months per se? I think that the market demand has definitely shifted. Uh, there are certain asset classes that today I wouldn't necessarily want to be holding or investing in. Uh, we talked about a little bit at the beginning of the Uh, of this conversation where we talked about what's happening in the world of office. A lot of companies are rethinking their office strategy. I think there's going to be a surplus of office. Uh, And so I don't, I would not want to be holding that asset class right now. Uh, That's number one. Number two, retail obviously is going through a world of hurt. Hospitality, I think is ultimately going to do okay. We're going to have a couple of really lean years and uh, as long as those businesses have the cash reserves to survive, 
it's going to impact their valuations, maybe 5 or 10% over a 20-year IRR calculation, uh, as long as they can survive the short term. Uh, if they can't survive the short term, there will be opportunities to pick up hotel assets for sure at a, at a discount. And I think there's a lot of money on the sidelines for that. But you've got to have a little bit of intestinal fortitude. It's you know hard to buy a hotel that's currently at 9% occupancy. You've got to really have some uh, big cojones, as they say. So and, and deep pockets to, to weather that this yeah, that storm. Yeah, you've got to have some pretty pretty strong reserves in place in order to weather that. Now, I think there's demand for uh, there's a few asset classes that I think are going through a tremendous amount of demand growth. Uh, industrial is probably top of the list. If you there was a survey, and I forget who did the survey now, so I'm, unfortunately I can't give you a reference, but uh, it was a survey of clients that were using online grocers for the first time. They've done it out of necessity. When asked if they would continue to use that service once this pandemic is over with, 45% said yes. So that's a huge number. It's a huge number. Huge number. That's, that's altering. You're seeing that office and grocery and across the board, the the amount of change that's going to come from uh, COVID, whether or not COVID completely goes away next week or whether it stays around for years, I think that's it's irrelevant to the fact that there is going to be change no matter what. Um, Absolutely. This is, a, this is going to accelerate some trends that were already underway, but now it's, it's like you press fast forward on your, on your podcast and just skip almost to the end of the episode. You know, it's, it's that kind of a, a sea change that's in, in, upon us. Uh, and, and and it makes sense because you know why is it that all of these e-commerce businesses are able to spend an extraordinary amount of money and an extraordinary amount of money on packaging to send something via FedEx or UPS and still get it to you cheaper than a retail storefront? Well, it's quite simple. You're going from real estate that might be in a downtown location at sixty-five dollars triple net per square foot into a warehouse that might be at five or $6 a square foot where you can stack stuff on pallets 14 feet high, you get a lot more product per square foot in a warehouse than you do. And so your, your, your inventory cost, on the, at least on the real estate side, your inventory holding cost is a fraction of what it is in, with retail space. So you're going to see smaller retail footprints. I don't think retail is going to disappear but far from it, but the footprints will reduce and the the mode of saying, okay, I'm going to try this on in the store. And there's just going to be a lot less inventory on the floor. Uh, so, you know, people will go try something on and, all right, you want this particular size, you want that color, all right, we'll have it delivered to your house in two days. I think yeah. there's going to be a lot of that. What that means, though, is in order to keep those lead times down, there's going to have to be a lot more local warehousing than there has been. That's why Amazon's been building these massive fulfillment centers all over the country. Uh, you know, the, the FedEx model where everything goes into a single hub uh, eventually does break down. I mean, it scaled, they, they managed to scale that concept far beyond what anybody ever imagined, but you can't scale that to the entire economy. So the, the entire economy does need local fulfillment. Uh, it just doesn't scale to ship everything to, you know, to, to Louisville, Kentucky or something. It just doesn't work. Yep. Well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with our final five. 
This episode of the Creative Real Estate Podcast is brought to you by both you and brought to you by the show itself. And we just wanted to say thank you, Jason. I really appreciate having you as a listener. And we have an ask. We've got a quick ask. If you have uh, been listening to the show for a little while, you love the show, and you haven't taken the time to leave a rating and a review, I just wanted to ask to see if you wouldn't mind uh, going into iTunes and doing a written review as well as a rating. Um, so that's our only ask. Let's get back to the show. We are back from break. We have Victor Minosh, and we're going to dive right into the final five. Victor, where? Well, actually, let's let's do the most creative real estate deal that you've been involved in. Tell us about that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I guess I have to tell the story of Scotland's Park. Uh, This is a baseball stadium about an hour outside New York City. Uh, It's in uh, uh, about 100 yards from the New Jersey State Fair in the rural part of New Jersey. This was one of these minor league baseball stadiums built in the early 90s at about a cost of $11 million. And it went bankrupt a year later with $26 million in debt. I have no idea how they did that. But anyway, um, the folks who bought it, ended up buying it for a decent price. They had the New Jersey Cardinals. They were a farm team for, I, I guess, the Cardinals. Uh, then there was the Sussex Skyhawks uh, as another team. They, they always broke league attendance records. And what happened was uh, the, 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 it was a husband and wife team that owned it. Uh, the husband died. The wife didn't know anybody in baseball. Uh, it was bleeding cash. Uh, they they had a contract for a septic system uh, to empty this big septic tank the size of a tanker truck for 110 grand a year. So this thing was bleeding cash, and she just wanted to move uh, to Florida to be close to her kids. So she handed it to a realtor who put it up on the MLS, folded his arms, and waited. And that's not how you market a baseball stadium. Now, we were not in the market for a baseball stadium, far from it. And the way that we discovered it was uh, my partner at the time uh, has a business and still does uh, that buys and sells cell towers. And this particular stadium had a cell tower on it with revenue from Verizon, T-Mobile, and uh, and AT&T. Sprint, Verizon, and T-Mobile, those three, yeah. And so it was about 50 grand in uh, cell tower revenue. That's how we found out about the stadium. They had a cash offer for a million five, which they had rejected. They had a financed offer for a million eight, which they accepted, and ultimately that fell through. And now two years into this whole process, we came along and said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll give you 950 for the stadium. So if you understand anything about cell towers, cell towers are income properties, and they get valued at approximately a 7% cap rate. So if you take that $50,000 a year in income, divide by 0.07, you get a valuation for the cell tower of about 700 grand. So we said, well, this thing is worth more broken apart than it is as a stadium. Because if the cell tower is worth 700 grand, then, and we can buy a stadium with 4,000 seats and, you know, 28 acres and 46,000 square feet of buildings and kitchens and all that for under 250 grand, that seems like a deal. So even before we took possession of it, we started trying to market it to people in baseball. 
And we came across a guy who said, well, I may want to buy it. I'm restarting a new league, but I need at least eight stadiums. So you're only one eighth of my problem. And we said, okay, how about you take an option? And he said, well, I don't know if I want an option. Tell you what, I'll take a right of first refusal. We said, okay, uh, that works. He said, how much do you want for a right of first refusal? We said, how about 250 grand? And he said, okay, um, but I want interest on my 250 grand. We said, no problem. What would you like? He said, 8%. So for 8% of the cost of 250 grand, we bought a baseball stadium on 28 acres of land. And we managed to get a college team to come in and put down new clay. And they paid, played, I don't know, a dozen or so games. And eventually we ended up selling the stadium uh, about a year later for a very, very handsome profit. Uh, with really no cash tied up in it at all. That's awesome. Baseball, cell phones, tossing some popcorn, I'm guessing. So, (laughs) you know, that's awesome. That's a great deal. That's a very creative story right there. So, well, great. Well, let's dive into where you see the market in five years. We've talked about that a little bit uh, before break. And where do you see yourself in five years? I think there's some very distinct asset classes that are going to go through a lot of transformation here. So, for example, one area that has been attracting a lot of attention over the last few years is assisted living. There's been a lot of product built, a lot of supplies come into the market. The demand is expected to more than double. So while it's overbuilt in a number of markets today, it is expected that that demand is going to catch up. Now, there's one wrinkle in all of this. People will have a memory of April March and April of 2020, where a disproportionate amount of disease and death happened in long-term care homes. And it's overwhelmingly in the big box long-term care homes, whether it's assisted living, nursing homes, which are much higher density, especially the ones that are Medicaid funded. So people are going to be very reluctant to put mom or dad into one of those facilities. We've been investing heavily in building brand new ground-up campuses of residential care homes where they're much lower density, 12 to 16 residents per home, much better caregiver ratio instead of 10 or 15 to one, you're looking at five, five and a half to one, so a much better caregiver ratio. And we're finding that in these smaller facilities, it's much easier to keep any kind of infectious disease, COVID-19 or otherwise, out the front door. So in our portfolio so far, we've had zero outbreaks, and we think that that is going to be the product that is going to deliver outsized returns as people look to shift out of big box assisted living into the residential care model. Right now, we've got a couple of hundred units under construction, and we expect uh, to ramp that up uh, in the wake of this. Great. Well, what, what's a book that you like to read or recommend to, to others? Oh my goodness, there are so many. Uh, so one of the things that I do on the podcast is every on the first day of every month, we actually have the book of the month. And the criteria is very simple. It has to be a book that's impactful enough that it'll either change your life or change your perspective on the world. So that is the criteria for any book that I review on the podcast. I'll, I'm going to put out a, a book that I actually just read, uh, and it was the book of the month uh, for the month of May. And it's called The End of Food. It's not a new book. It was written, I'm going to say, around 2006. But what it does is it breaks down the, the way our food system works. We're starting to see uh, disruptions in our supply chains for food. So why is it that even though the population hasn't really changed, 
there are shortages coming out of the meatpacking plants? Well, it's because people don't buy 200 chicken breasts at a time, only restaurants do. And so since restaurants are closed, they don't have the ability, there's a bottleneck in the system. And there's these types of bottlenecks exist everywhere. And I have to say, I will never walk into a grocery store and look at a grocery store the same way after having read this book. Uh, so it's called The End of Food by Paul Roberts, um, and that'll give you tremendous insight. You'll understand why there are places in the food chain today where product is for free. In fact, it's rotting in the field, and that same product in the supermarket is now 50% more or 80% more. Yeah, if you can even find it in there. If you so, can even find it, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Well, what's your favorite way you like to give back to the real estate community that's uh, given to you and your success in, in your career? Well, producing the podcast, uh, you know, it's a daily show seven days a week. It's a labor of love. We've got uh, tremendous engagement from our listeners and I get that in the form of questions. So I love to answer, answer listeners questions and uh, love the feedback that we get from the listeners. So that's probably the number one way. And it literally is a daily uh, investment in, in giving back. That's great. Well, to wrap up, the last question we ask is what's one way we know you're a very popular guy out there. So what's, but what's the one way uh, for we can throw in the show notes for people to reach out to you if they want to learn a little bit more and, and follow up after the episode? Uh, best way is directly through the website. I'm at victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. You can access the Real Estate Espresso podcast directly from there. You can message me directly from the website and happy to connect with you and uh, connect with your listeners and um, just love to answer any questions. That's great. We really appreciate it, Victor. Uh, next time we'll have to dive in a little bit more and, and listen to your stories of you on your sailboats. Uh, that sounds like a good time right now. So, <laughs> right on. but for right now, we will we'll wrap up. And as we like to say, my friends, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box.